Well, when we talk about greed and the love of wealth, we find many illustrations of that in our world today and throughout past history. One of those is a very familiar name, Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes, during his lifetime, was one of the most envied men in the world. He was known as a very wealthy businessman, a film tycoon. He was a financial investor, an aerospace engineer. He piloted planes. We know him for the Spruce Goose. Some of you have even been on that plane. He was the envy of the world, and many would have thought that he had it all. He possessed a kind of talent and creativity, an amount of wealth and charisma, and had a kind of influence on people that is rare to find all concentrated in one person. And so we could say that Howard Hughes really in many ways, according to the world standard, had it all. And yet after his death, his world started to be revealed to the public. And soon after, it was revealed that Howard Hughes led a life that was far from content, far from joyous. But six months after his death, Time Magazine published an article called The Secret Life of Howard Hughes, and it's a fitting introduction to our study of Ecclesiastes 5, so I, would, I want to read a few portions of that Time Magazine article published December 13th, 1976, around six months after his death on a plane on April 5th. The writer of the article writes this, he was the world's ultimate enigma, a man so secretive, so hidden from view that no outsider could say with certainty whether he was alive, much less how he looked or behaved. He was one of the world's richest, most imperious, capricious, outrageous, eccentric, and powerful men. Yet for all his power, he lived a sunless, joyless half-lunatic life in those same hideaways, a, a virtual prisoner walled in by his own crippling fears and weaknesses. Once a dash, vibrant figure, he neglected his appearance and health during the, his last 15 years until he became a pathetic wraith. The article goes on to describe the drug enslavement that Howard Hughes had and then goes on to say this about his physical appearance. Hughes' physical appearance was horrifying. His straggly beard hung to his waist. His hair reached mid-back. His fingernails were two inches long, and his toenails grew and grew until they resembled yellow corkscrews. When he was able, he walked with a pronounced stoop. Often he went naked Sometimes he wore a pair of drawstring white underpants because he had an aversion to buttons, metal snaps, and zippers. And then a final paragraph I'll quote from that article says this, Although four doctors rotated in taking care of Hughes, his medical condition was appalling. His former six-foot-four-inch frame had shrunk three inches, and his weight fluctuated between a high of 130 pounds and a cadaverous 90 pounds. He suffered variously from anemia, arthritis, and assorted other ills, no doubt brought upon him by his anxiety. Nothing plagued him more than constipation. At one time, he sat on the toilet for 72 straight hours, occasionally propping himself on a chair set next to him so he could support himself while dozing. Many people would love the life of a Howard Hughes, thinking that the wealth, the riches, the fame, the talent, the charisma, the influence would all bring about satisfaction. But when we peel back the veneer, Howard Hughes was one of the most discontent people who have ever lived. And that sets us up well for the same kind of lesson that Solomon learned as he himself worked through many of these same issues in life, 
And as he was guided by the Holy Spirit some almost 3,000 years ago to record these lessons that he learned near the end of his life after his own pursuits into the ideas that suggest that significance, man's significance can be found in wealth. He found that to be false. And we have in the book of Ecclesiastes his testimony and observations. So turn in your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we will begin reading at verse 8 of chapter 5. In fact, this whole section that we will now study from verse 10 all the way through to the end of the chapter in verse 20 really provide for us a summation of one of the seven deadly sins, greed. We've already looked at envy back in chapter 4. Now we see greed on display in chapter 5. And as one commentator described these verses, verses 8 to 20, he described it this way. He said, the whole passage deals with the problem of human insatiability and the lack of contentment. We're going to see that actually beginning right there in verse 8, verse 8 of Ecclesiastes 5. This text is going to break up into three portions, verses 8 to 10, then verses 10 to 17, and then the alternative to all of this in verses 18 to 20. But let's begin with the first section, the first lesson that Solomon gives us. It's in verses 8 and 9. Greed's institutional prevalence. Greed's institutional prevalence is a structural problem within humanity. And you probably are wondering why on the screen there's a picture of this ugly frog. Let me tell you a little bit of background. It's actually a portrait that's part of the Getty Center collection, although I don't think it's displayed at this time. It comes from a 16th, 17th century Dutch artist whose name is Jacques de Gain II. And he entitled this portrait, A Frog Sitting on Coins and Holding a Sphere, the Allegory of Avarice. Avarice is an old English term for greed. And he felt that this picture of a frog, a frog that tries to live in both worlds, the water and dry land, best pictured or best served as a picture for greed. Now, when you look at the frog in this painting, you see that he has somewhat of human characteristics, his legs, his arms, his back. He's got feet that look like claws. He's got this hump on his back that looks like a old man hunched over. Not hard to think of Howard Hughes in that. With its raised head and prominent eye, the frog appears to have this impassive and even prideful look to it. Altogether, this frog resembles greed. Why? This creature, hideous as it is, doesn't just rest on the coins, but on the one hand, it grasps this globe, referring to the world, And then it sits on coins and in this uncouth manner reaches through his legs to hold the coins. As I said, the the sphere represents the earth and the, the coins represent its wealth. And altogether, the frog is this monstrous perversion of man in the natural world, always seeking more. Now that said, let's look first at how this manifests itself in the structures of government. Solomon says this in verses 8 and 9. He says, if you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight, for one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Now let's look first at verse 8. Solomon has already commented on the the problem of, of governmental oppression. 
In chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, he speaks of the ubiquity of injustice within the hierarchies of human authority. And in that particular context of chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, Solomon's focus there is that the consequence of these injustices is that it often leaves the victims to suffer alone. But here, Solomon's focus is a little different. Again, he is focused on the injustices of, of government, but now the focus is on its structural greed, how the government runs on greed. Now Solomon, being the, the man that he was at the time with this, this expansive knowledge of the nations and the governments around him, was in a particularly good place in order to be able to describe the plight of humanity, and that's what he does in these verses. He says this in verse 8, if you see oppression of the poor and the denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. We, we see here that Solomon displays his very low view of humanity. He knows that humanity is marked by sin, and whenever you see human structures of leadership, there will be an institutionalized or a structural greed that is part of that. He says, do not expect anything differently. Do not be shocked at the sight. He goes on to say this, for one official watches over another, and there are higher officials over them. By explaining that one official watches over another, Solomon is is indicating that within this system, this organized system that is supposed to be intended for human flourishment, is supposed to be intended for the good of the people, there is this systemic greed that marks government. That government and the agents of government in in its institutionalized form are commonly marked by self-interest scratching each other's backs, feeding each other insider information to the detriment of the people that they are to serve. And certainly, we can attest to this in our own government. It is incredibly marked by greed when politicians who are supposed to earn just a modest income become multi-multi-multi-millionaires in a short period of time, you can know that there is corruption. You think even of the corruption taking place within the state of California through the welfare systems. Billions of dollars earmarked to help the homeless, and yet only a fraction of that money ever does any good. Most of it is spent on the government. That is what we face. That is the system that we are in. And if you might say, well, then we need to go to a a socialist system. Well, in, in that case, if you do some reading, there is no system of government that is so marked by greed as the socialist system. Rampant. The whole socialist government, communist government idea bases itself on that very deadly sin of greed. It is everywhere. It is the world in which we live outside of the garden, the cursed world, the world where we face the consequences of sin, and in government structures, it manifests itself in this greed. One commentator writes this, sometimes such watching over involves checks and balances that enable government to operate efficiently and justly. However, all too often those successive levels of government provide a means of sharing bribes that are distributed up the chain by the original recipient who keeps but a small part of it for himself. Mutual protection makes it difficult to root out corruption. In fact, if you are looking for a very good argument for limited government, it is found right here in Ecclesiastes 5 verse 8. To the degree that you you multiply officials is the degree to which you multiply the potential for oppressive greed. Now, connected to this is verse 9, and admittedly, verse 9 is a, is a, is a difficult proverb to interpret. 
Solomon says this in, in the NASB, he, it's translated in these words, after all, a king who cultivates the fields is an advantage to the land. The LSB translates it as follows, but the advantage of the land in everything is this, a, a king committed to a cultivated field. The ESV translates it as, but this is gain for land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Or the NIV, the increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. The the key questions here are these. First of all, how does verse 9 relate to Solomon's observation on systemic corruption in human hierarchies? How does verse 9 relate to verse 8? And then, how does, more specifically in verse 9, how does the king relate to the cultivated field? On the one hand, you could interpret it this way. Perhaps Solomon is continuing his complaint and is saying that the greed that goes up the line, that goes up the ladder, stretches all the way to the very top wherein the king himself goes after and robs the prophet of the farmer. Now that certainly is a possibility here. It's not a bad option, especially if we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 to 18. The people of Israel didn't have a king at that time. And so they beg and plead for a king. And then Yahweh tells Samuel, this is what's going to happen. And in that text describes how Israel, once it has a king, the king will inevitably begin to levy heavy taxation on the people. So it's possible that Solomon had that in mind. Or a second option, and this is probably better, that Solomon sees here some level of a check to the greed that happens among the lower magistrates. It appears that Solomon is still holding out hope, especially if we were to look at a couple of Proverbs, like Proverbs 23, verses 10 and 11, and Proverbs 29, verse 4. I won't read those, but in the book of Proverbs, there's this idea that the king is is kind of that last protection that protects the rights of the, the lowly. And perhaps, and this is likely what is intended here, that Solomon sees that within human systems of government, greed is pervasive, it's prevalent, because it is part of our human nature. And when man has a a position of authority, he inevitably begins to use it for his own purposes. But there still is hope, there still is the idea of a head of state, a king, who can keep that system in check and protect the rights of the field workers. So the LSB, I think, captures it well. Verse 9, but the advantage of the land in everything is this. In light of what has been said in verse 8 and about the systemic greed, but the advantage of the land is this, a king who is committed to a cultivated field. The predatory greed of governmental systems can only be offset by a righteous ruler who fulfills his duty to protect the ordinary worker. That's probably the best way to understand the proverb that Solomon has there, gives us there in verse 9. But before you think that Solomon is primarily concerned with government and governmental greed, the heart of this text really deals with the individual. And that's the section to which we now transition, verses 10 to 17 of Ecclesiastes 5. Here's what Solomon writes. As he transitions from looking at systemic greed now to personal greed, he writes this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. 
There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil, exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. As Solomon gives us this instruction, he gives it to us in six lessons about the folly of greed. And the first one is this, greed never satisfies. Greed never satisfies. He gives his assertion here in verse 10, which really colors the whole entire section. We are to read everything else that follows with this overarching assertion. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. Now notice the object of this love. He defines it or describes it by three terms. Money, notice this, money, abundance, and income. That's what this particular man loves. And and the more a person loves that object, the more he wants of it. But as Solomon says, such a person operating by greed pursuing income and abundance and money as the objects of his satisfaction will never, ever find what he's looking for. Solomon says it as clear as day. And yet each one of us in this room, due to the ongoing influence of our own flesh, still do not fully believe what Solomon says. We still from time to time, or perhaps dominantly, orchestrate our lives in a direction that assumes if I can just get a little bit more, I'll be happy. In fact, the saying goes, posed to one of the most wealthiest men that ever lived, J.D. Rockefeller, how much money does it take to make a man happy? And his response was just one more dollar. One commentator on this particular text explains the problem here well. Charles Bridges says this, The vanity of this disease is coveting what does not satisfy when we have it. Hunger is satisfied by meat and thirst with drink. But hunger or thirst for this world's wealth is as unsatisfying at the end as it was at the beginning. And just think of that. What a wonderful analogy. You know, we all grow hungry. It's part of our creaturely existence. We get hungry three times a day or more. And we find that we can find a level of of satisfaction with a good steak. What satisfaction is there, right? Wow, fills the belly well. And as my dad would often say after he would eat some good meal, he says, I'm so full, I don't even know why I ate. We're satisfied. But the thing about greed is that there is never a point when that satisfaction is truly experienced. The hunger for it remains just as strong in the end as it was in the beginning. Or as... A Puritan, Thomas Adams, said, he said, Riches and contentedness are like two buckets. While one comes up, the other goes down empty. Riches may come up full. The level of contentment goes down accordingly. That's the life of greed. Greed never brings satisfaction. Number two, greed always comes at a cost. Greed always comes at a cost. Verse 11, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owner's expense to look, but to look on? As a rule, 
an increase in the supply of wealth or the possession of wealth is is always accompanied by an increase in the demand for that wealth. That is a rule. That is how we even exist in this country. The more money you make, what happens? The government comes after it with a greater fervor. That's exactly what this text is referring to. But it doesn't just refer to the government, it refers to others as well. Solomon here speaks of the kind of consumerism that is attracted by those who do have success in life, whether it's government, family members, friends, or neighbors. You start to become successful, Solomon says, and then all of a sudden the dependents around you are clamoring to get a part of it. The bigger the profit, the greater the attention that's given. In fact, we all know of those those anecdotal stories of lottery winners You know, they begin as some lowly person who wins some outrageous sum of money and goes to collect on it, and all of a sudden he's attracted all kinds of people, and within a few short years, that person is friendless and bankrupt. He's devastated. His life is worse than if he had just kept on working that same old job. Success, and and Solomon wants us to understand this, success in the accumulation of wealth, damages more relationships and fosters more feigned friendships than than adversity. We think that adversity is, is anathema. It's so difficult to go through. And yet, according to this teaching from Solomon and other such proverbs that, that we find in the book of Proverbs, that an increase in wealth is often the cause of a lot of damaged relationships and a lot of false friendships. And so Solomon says, be warned. Be warned. Greed comes at a cost. Number three, greed inflicts a toll, primarily a physical toll. You set your heart to the accumulation of wealth, you, you, you set your heart, your affection upon riches. What's going to happen? He gives us another statement, another lesson here, a third one in verse 12. He says, the sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. The rich man, again, is the one here who loves money. Verse 10, we've seen that already. And this rich man, Solomon says, has acquired so much that he kind of has a passive income now. He's, he's able to generate wealth passively, so he doesn't need to work anymore. Here's the problem. Though he has enough, that, uh, enough of these assets that allow him to just sit back and stop working, his anxiety over the state of those assets does not allow him to sleep. He suffers from worry, or what we could say, affluenza, that disease, that, that, that supposed disease that that one young college boy once tried to use as an excuse for why he killed several people in a, in a car wreck. Affluenza, the effect of affluence and, and love of money and greed on a person's life, it makes them sick. However, Solomon says, the working man who has less and who must work for everything, even if he doesn't have enough. Notice Solomon says, whether he eats little or much, he still will get his sleep. Now again, Solomon is speaking here proverbially. He's not giving an absolute, but he is stating a rule that those who often have less and who must work for every day's meal... And you have to go in and punch the time card and put in the time and go through the process that those who have the proper attitude within that lifestyle tend to sleep far better than those who have much and are given over to an anxiety over the state of their wealth. Jesus speaks much about this in Matthew chapter 6. We don't have time to go there to, to look at all that Jesus teaches, but he does say this in, in verse 25, Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. Do not be worried about your life. 
as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you'll put on. Is not life worth more than food and the body more than clothing? I was doing a little bit of research on this and the, the, the statistics on children who are raised in affluent families and their overall health. And the, the statistics consistently show that after you get rid of certain things like malnutrition, which are certainly problems, once you erase that from the equation and just look at lower-income families and high-income families, the health, mental and physical health of the affluent is worse than the poor. And why is that? Greed. Greed attaches itself to affluence. And Solomon is warning us here, be careful. Number four, greed clouds judgment, verses 13 and 14. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, there was nothing to support him. Solomon now provides an illustration, that of a hoarder, and he calls what he sees a grievous evil. It's painful to observe. The mere accumulation of riches is what this hoarder does. He, he does not employ riches. He accumulates riches, and that leads to his And the important thing to note is this, and we get this certainly from the book of Proverbs, that God has not designed wealth to be hoarded. He has not designed success to be enjoyed only by the owner of that success. But a very important key to the idea of growing in success and wealth is that it is to overflow always and in proportion to the benefit of others as well. But in this case... This greedy man hoards it, and he does so to his own hurt. And part of that hoarding, and and, and part of that accumulation for self, is found in this man's investment of money in what is called a bad investment. Likely here, what Solomon is referring to is, is those risky investments. Those people who are hoarding, 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 accumulating wealth. And what do they do? They want to get rich quick. That's why they hoard. That's why they they accumulate. They've got to get rich faster. And so they can't be generous. They can't let it overflow to the benefit of others. They've got to keep it all. And those who operate are more prone to invest in these kinds of risky ventures. And in short, what this man does, Solomon says, is that he gambles and he loses. He gambles and he loses. And as a result, Solomon says, part of the pain that's manifest here is that the man squandered even the inheritance he should have left to his own son. His son had nothing left. And here's the lesson. Greed clouds judgment. It clouds judgment and it makes men particularly vulnerable to these get-rich-quick schemes and to the financial ruin that almost always follows them. Men, if you're drawn to those get-rich-quick schemes, to those people who walk around saying they've got the the secret to become wealthy fast, men, if you're drawn to that, you need to get help. You need to confess the greed and flee from those who are offering that quick wealth. Another Puritan, Thomas Fuller, put it this way, Riches are long in getting with much pains, hard in keeping with much care, but quick in losing with more sorrow. There's another lesson to learn about greed, and Solomon has this in verses 15 and 16. It's this, greed does not account for death. Greed does not want to think about death. He says, as he had come from naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind, who tries to corral the wind? In other words, this is Solomon's wordy way of saying you will never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. You can't take it with you. 
But here's the thing about greed. Greed cannot account for the reality of death. Greed does not want the greedy man to think about death. I remember talking with a friend who served as a manager of a pretty wealthy estate in Malibu. And he said what was astounding in those settings when the owner and the friends would get together would be that they were utterly fearful of the topic of death. You could not speak of it in their presence. And that's what marks a greedy man. He's unable to talk about death. He's unable to come to terms with its reality and to speak of it robustly, healthily. And yet we must, Genesis 3.19, that truth upon which so much of Ecclesiastes is built. You are dust and you shall return to dust. That is a consequence of the fall. That is the wages of sin. Job repeats that even after he has lost all of his wealth. He repeats that in Job 1.21. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 1 Timothy 6 verse 7. Paul emphasizes the same point. For we have brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out of it either. You see, death is the great liquidator of wealth. All who die, die equally. They all die without anything, nothing. They die returning to the dust, taking nothing with them. And so to toil without understanding that death is coming, that life is a vapor, is to toil after the wind. But a proper view of wealth A proper view of its pursuit must include the realization that your life is brief. It could be required of you tonight. And that reality that you have no guarantees and you can't take it with you has to mitigate and mortify this tendency toward greed. There's another lesson here, the final one. The, the fifth or the sixth one in this chapter, and it's this, greed sickens the soul. Verse 17, throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Solomon concludes his exposition, his expose, you could say, of greed with his own Howard Hughes ending. There's a picture of Howard Hughes there. He hoarded antiseptic gels and stuff. And he would walk around in boxes of Kleenex. He, he ended his life, you could say, with great vexation, sickness, and anger. You see, Solomon says the man of greed eats in the darkness. And that's either because he's so miserly that at the end of his life he can't and won't and refuses to even light a candle, or more likely he is all on his own. He's all by himself. Moreover, the man of greed eats with great vexation, sickness, and anger. With anxiety, illness, and self-pity. He is socially, he is emotionally, and he is spiritually bankrupt. That's the end of the greedy man's. Greedy men are sickened in the soul. Paul touches on this same point when he says this. If we have... Food and clothing, 1 Timothy 6, 8 to 10. If we have food and clothing, with these things we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare. And many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That is a summation of Ecclesiastes 5, 10 to 17. Well, there's an alternative to this. And we'll go through it quickly. The final three verses of chapter 5. There is an alternative. There is a totally different way of living And Solomon provides this 
in these next verses, beginning in verse 18. As, as Charles Bridges said, we find here in this text a bright vision now comes before the wise man that, count, that, that contrasts with the frowning cloud that has just preceded. Verses 18 to 20 serve as this carpe diem text. We've referred to that several times already, that seize the day kind of mentality. Solomon said this already in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 24 to 26. He said, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that labor is good. This also I have seen. It is from the hand of God for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him. Or in chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, I know that there's nothing better than for them, better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labors. It is the gift of God. Here Solomon repeats those same basic ideas. Let me quickly read through the text, and I want you to notice something that is now repeated with intensity. He says, I, he says, here's what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat and drink and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of life which God has given him. Notice he's now mentioning God. In the entire text that has preceded our study, the text that we've looked at this evening from verse 8 to verse 17, there is no mention of God. But now, once again, God is the center of the picture. God has given it to him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, verse 19, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Again, references to God, his goodness, his giving, his empowerment. And then finally, verse 20, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Very quickly, the issue here is the difference for how one relates wealth to God. How do we relate wealth to God? Moreover, the difference here is that we have entered the kind of lifestyle now that no longer has money as the object of affections. Instead, although Solomon doesn't use the terminology, this dramatic shift that has taken place indicates that this man, this life described in verses 18 to 20, this man has God as the object of his affections. Solomon refers to God here five times in these verses, some of the highest concentrations in the entire letter. God is the one who gives. God is the one who empowers. God is the one who keeps. This is the God-centered alternative to that life under the sun that is characterized by a view, by a a, a vision, a, a worldview that looks only at wealth and what one can get from wealth. And it's this kind of God-centered perspective that protects against two very common errors. One of them, an error in the minority, is this idea of asceticism. That there is nothing in this life that we should enjoy. That our calling is to do away with all comforts. That's the error of asceticism. And the, the Bible denounces that approach, that Response, But then there is that prevalent problem of avarice, of greed, of obsessing with life's pleasures, and both of them are wrong. He says here in verse 18, he says, this is the life that is good and fitting, that is beneficial and appropriate. He prescribes enjoyment of the things, not hoarding, not worrying, not obsessing, not loving, but enjoying. And that is a very big difference. One of the important things that we must learn in light of Solomon's teaching is that the enjoyment of God's goodness in this life, the enjoyment even of success, of wealth, enjoyment is different than love of those things. Because enjoyment in the, in the idea of Solomon revolves around God, seeing God as the giver of these things. And and Solomon says there should be enjoyment in the most simple things in life of eating and drinking. And the idea there is that in, in those littlest things, even whether it's bread and water 
or what have you, that there is to be enjoyment or in one's work. And he points to this reality of the few years that we've been given, the realization that that why are we striving when there's no guarantees? Why are we hoarding, gambling, worrying? We are to receive these gifts from God seeing them as a reward and therefore enjoying them. Verse 19, furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Solomon here affirms the sovereignty of God. It is God's determination. It's God's right to distribute wealth as he pleases. And that as it comes to us in varying proportions, we are to receive it as his gift. But as God gives those things, as he gives income, he intends that we as the recipients receive and respond to that income appropriately. We are to respond with joy. And again, do not confuse joy with greed. Joy here is God-centered. A recognition of God's sovereignty that he is the one who gives. And he can give or not give according to his pleasure. But what I receive, I receive as a gift and I appreciate and I am, con- I am content with and I give thanks over that which God has given. There is to be contentment. There is to be thankfulness. Verse 20 then Solomon says, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. Back in verse 18, there was the reference to the few years which God gives the man to live. But here, the man is not considering the length of his years. What's, what's going on? And what Solomon is emphasizing is this. It's, it's not that we forget about the brevity of life, but when we have the proper understanding of what God gives to us to enjoy, we do not worry over the shortness of our lives. I mean, that's so helpful. We must cultivate that ability that we can talk confidently, that we can talk fearlessly about the reality of our own deaths. And perhaps that's the main lesson here, that if we can't talk about that, if we are fearful like so many wealthy people are to even raise the issue of death, we've got problems. We need to be able to talk openly with our families about the reality that this life is short. I might be gone tomorrow. And that affects everything here that we do today. It gives us the right perspective on stewardship. One writer puts it this way, when humans enjoy life as God's gift, They remain aware of their mortality, but they are not oppressed by the thought of it. This enjoyment enables humans to keep life and death in the proper perspective. In other words, contentment is able to smile in the face of mortality. Now some final exhortations as we wrap up. Obviously, as Solomon has concluded his instruction here on the topic of greed, we must look to God. We must look to him as our ultimate possession. And that everything else in life must be put in secondary and tertiary priorities. That the object of our love cannot be as it is for the greedy man in verse 10, that he loves money, but the object of our affection must be God, the one who gives life. Look to God. Secondly, confess, repent, and mortify your greed. Understand it is innate to your flesh. That fallen flesh which you still bear, it's innate. And and, and in the moment of a lack of vigilance, greed is ready to send its tentacles and take over your life once again. And it's not unusual to hear how men start off well and then allow greed to overtake their lives as they get into their careers and they lose their families and then live to regret it. Man, greed is a serious enemy. Be vigilant, confess, repent, and mortify that greed. Number three, acknowledge your limitations. 
acknowledge your limitations, you will die one day. You are a man who is affected by your circumstances. Acknowledge that. Think about death. Plan for death. Be ready for death. Number four, put on contentment. Be able to be satisfied with either, as as Solomon said, whether you've had enough to eat or not quite enough. Put on contentment. And then number five, enjoy God's gifts. Enjoy them. Don't hoard them. Don't obsess over them. Enjoy what God has given and ensure that an element of that enjoyment, a very significant element of that enjoyment is that the benefit of that wealth overflows to others. In fact, that whole principle is based on the character of our God because it is out of the richness of his essence that we receive abundance. Out of the richness of his character, we receive riches. And in fact, that brings us to the gospel and the realization that we will only find significance in recognizing the poverty of our own souls and in recognizing the riches of our great God and realizing that significance will be found only through his son, Jesus Christ, by realizing that the life that this world has to offer is a life of what Solomon says here in verse 17, great vexation, sickness, and anger. But there is a life of joy, happiness, and contentment, and it is found in Jesus Christ. Turn to him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that in Jesus Christ are found all the riches that will satisfy our souls. We're thankful that though you have given us this life and the things in this life to enjoy, that that there is something much higher, and it is found in the abundance of your character manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, and that in him we can be blessed and are blessed with all spiritual blessing. I pray, Father, that each one of us would understand that in deeper ways and that that would transform our understanding and our relationship then of wealth It would lead to greater contentment, joy, and happiness on this earth. And through that, make us a wonderful blessing to all of those around us. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.